0: way okay how about that uh, that blacktop out there what do we think yes need some lines you know you're never satisfied what is up with you (laughs) no I want to I want to recognize David and Matt have put a lot of work into making that project happen it's been chaos with the weather they have to have you know a certain number of consecutive days of no rain good luck and uh, they've gone out of their way and disrupted their work schedules and all that kind of stuff to to get this done and so we are going to have it lined soon and um, it's going be it's going to be really nice slightly slightly larger spaces good right yeah um, we're even going to have a, a we're moving the, where the basketball uh, goal is going to be. It'll be on the other side of the sheds, and there'll be a court-lined, a little bit more hospitable to our many neighbors who like to come over here and play. Um, last Saturday, when I was up here setting up tables and chairs, I, let, I guess it was like 10.30 when I pulled out, and there was a crew pulling in to play ball. Uh, so there's a lot of use that you may not notice throughout the week over here and we're we're really happy to to make that space for them. Make that space for them. So this morning we're going to talk about making space, making space for God's transformative presence. Um boy, this is this is tricky. We're we're going to we're going to look at instructions for building a tent. Okay? That's our that's where we are. This morning in the book of Exodus we're going to do some some architectural instructions uh, for tent making um, and so the question that we have to address like there's this primary question on the next slide wait 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 I promise it's accessible this time if you want to look at if you want to look at the document uh, if it helps you just read along that works, or that link works, um, and the permissions are c- set correctly this time. Uh, and Kyle made sure. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Okay, but on the next slide, there's this primary question: What do the instructions for the construction, the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle, mean for us? Is there meaning in this for us, or is this just an ancient document that happens to have a pretty mundane a set of instructions about building this space? It's a tough question. I mean, it's not obvious when you read this what the church ought to do with it. In fact, the church, we tend to have this attitude uh, because of some of the turns that the authors of the New Testament make in their understanding of Jesus and the church and therefore the sacrificial system and the temple and its earlier iteration, which is the tabernacle we tend to think like this is all sort of passe. We don't need to think much about this. You know, it's good to think about the exodus because we can think about God setting us free, right? And maybe it's good to contemplate the law of God because the law is righteous and true. But when it comes to this kind of stuff, you know, um, we don't need this anymore. This is not for us. Uh, I think that's wrong. I think that's wrong. I think, I think I agree with the apostle that all scripture is inspired and is useful to us for instruction and teaching and reproof and correction and all sorts of good things. Well, all sorts of things. Uh, some of them are good and some of them hurt, but it's useful for that because it's all God-breathed. And so we have this question before us. What do they mean for us? Well, I would say this. God in these instructions expresses an intention and that is that he intends to reverse the effects of human rebellion by sanctifying Israel through the rituals of drawing near to God's presence in their midst yeah, to sanctify them to make them holy through the rituals of drawing near to God's presence in their midst To this end, God calls Israel to make space for holiness. They have to make that space. And I think we do too. I think we have to make that space. They're not capable of simply returning to the fellowship of the garden in Eden. They can't just go back to that. Israel's unholiness requires a slow, transformative approach to God. The construction of the tabernacle makes space for this gradual reconciliation. It is the physical structure by which Israel can learn to become a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. They need this space, they need this structure to enter into this this process on purpose over and over and over in order to draw nearer to the holy presence of God. And here's the reason that that has to be gradual. Um, This is very simple. And I'm going to quote one of my Old Testament professors here. God will melt your face off. Right We've seen Indiana Jones, right? Seen the Ark of the Covenant. Like we tend to we t- Christians, at least we uh, low church type christians we we tend toward sorry, low church, high church is sort of informal, more formal, right? despite what happened last Sunday with the liturgy uh, we we're, we tend to be pretty informal, we we tend toward a kind of flippancy about the presence of God. We enter boldly into the throne room, right? Well, let's just take note of who's sitting on that throne. And if we enter boldly, (laughs) it's at great risk to someone. Someone made that possible, because you don't simply walk into the presence of holy God and expect to live. Why? Because you're not holy. And he will burn you away, or he will burn your unholiness away. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. So Israel can't just go, oh, we're saved now, and in the presence of God. She won't survive it. And Neither would we were it not for Jesus. So let's not be flippant. Let's be bold and grateful and familiar with our Father. Let's walk into that embrace, but remember who is embracing you. Remember the absolute holiness that has made you holy. That's what this process is about, making Israel holy. So, let's go to the next one. We're going to talk about three things this morning to clarify this idea. The first is a slow return to Eden. The second is making space, the work of making space. And the third is God's purpose, to what end, what's actually happening through the construction and then ritual use of the tabernacle. So first, the slow return to Eden, which is the unification of what used to be one. That's heaven and earth. It used to be one. There used to be full union between God and God's creation. Heaven is the presence of God, right? Where God is. It's not not really like a, a locale up in the clouds, right? Heaven is the word we use to talk about the place where God fully is. And so when we say your will be done on earth as in heaven and we acknowledge the distinction, what we're saying is here on earth, God is not Present in the same way, and his will, therefore, is not done in the same way. It's to say the same thing, because where God is present, present, that's holy. And if there's somewhere where God's will is not done, that is not holy. That is not godly. And so there is this distinction, and we long and pray for the reunification. And this tabernacle is a step in that direction. It's the first step toward the relationship with God that humankind's beginning in Eden represents. So go to the Well that's what I just said, just in case you wanted to read it for yourself. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to have to try to remember which uh, title slides I've got in there. So here's the, the essential symbolism. There's a ton of symbolism in these three chapters. We're in 25 through 27 of, of Exodus. A ton of symbolism. We don't have time this morning. Nor is a sermon really the place to sort of go through the minutia of all of that. But I want you to see the, the big idea. Okay, the garden within creation is a place after the sin of Adam and Eve, is a place guarded by cherubim and a flaming sword, blocking entry into The place where Adam and Eve walked with God in person. And in which at its center lies the tree of life. This tree that represents access to eternal life. This tree that represents the essence of God. Eternity. Life. Likewise, the tabernacle is constructed in three layers. And just in case you miss it, the cherubim are now in triplicate. Okay? There's a curtain that separates the courtyard from the tent of meeting. And on that curtain are cherubim. And then there's a curtain that separates the tent of meeting from the most holy place, and on that curtain are cherubim. And then on the very lid of the ark where resides the presence of God are cherubim. Every layer of this is a warning to Israel. You are drawing near to the holiness of God. And that's what the ritual of coming into this space, a space of recreation, right? The tabernacle is now creation renewed, set in miniature upon the earth. And God invites Israel, come into this space, offer sacrifice and repent for your sin, be forgiven and draw near Into the presence of God. And the priests who mediate that process, who help the Israelites draw nearer to God, are the models, the paradigms for all the nation which has already been called to become a kingdom of priests. This is our field of practice. This is where we draw near to God so that we can help others do the same. So we make this space, we build it out. But it's only the first step in a long process of transformation. Each step represents an epoch or an era in which God's holy presence draws nearer to his people until at last we live in union with God. So I want to locate the tabernacle at the beginning of this this process on the next slide. uh, You can see kind of the five, what I'm just calling steps, toward union with God. We begin with the tabernacle. and This is transformation on the way. I'll say more about each of these momentarily. But God comes and dwells with Israel. And then... Once in Israel enters the promised land, God dwells in the temple in this place, and Israel lives in relation to God in this location. And then Jesus becomes the temple, the dwelling place of God. And then the church in Jesus becomes the temple. Until at last, all things are united with God in the reconciliation of heaven and earth. So let's walk through each of those. First, we have the tabernacle. You can just stay on this slide and I'll, uh, unless you're reading along, I'll, I'll just uh, walk us through this, where God dwells with Israel, because Israel begins as a nomadic people. So God's not in a place, right? He's with the people. Israel's ancient confession begins, "A wandering Aramean was my ancestor," or as the Hebrew writer puts it, they confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on earth, for people who speak in this way and make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And after her liberation, Israel still wanders toward the promised land, through the desert. God's redeemed are constituted as a pilgrim people, a homeless nation, refugees and immigrants. But they are a people whose center is God's presence. That's what the tabernacle is. So God takes the initiative here. In this wandering state, God not only leads the way uh, out of slavery and through the desert, but designs a way for Israel to begin the journey back to full communion. This is a, des- a design that we're reading about this morning and in Exodus 25 to 27. Rebellion and broken fellowship means that she's not able to walk with God in the cool of the evening as Adam and Eve once did in the garden. But God wills to draw near, nonetheless. So he provides a tabernacle as a means for Israel to learn anew how to walk with God through the heat of the desert instead of the cool of the night. Then when we come to the temple and the land itself is transformed because now it is a place where God dwells. God takes up residence in Jerusalem. Later after Israel enters the promised land, God comes to dwell in a particular place. The tabernacle becomes permanent in the construction of the temple. And so Israel's sanctification continues as God calls the royal priesthood and holy nation to become a place whose center is God's presence. A people and now a place whose center is God's presence. The prophets express God's longing for this place. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills all the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is a different place because God is at its center. But of course, Israel has to live in proximity to that presence in a way that participates in that sanctifying work. And... She does not. And so the next step in this story is an even more radical intervention by God than before. And indeed, almost too radical to conceive, to imagine. At the turning of the age, the word comes to live among humankind in bodily form. The Apostle John gives voice to the miracle and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. And He uses that word very intentionally. He tabernacled among us, called to mind God's presence among His sojourning people. He came and made his dwelling here in bodily form. The holy presence of God draws near once more, now invading the dominion of sin and death, showing us how to walk through life in friendship and fellowship with God. Grace and truth, mercy and justice, holiness, takes on flesh in our midst. And accordingly, Jesus serves the function that the temple once did. God's presence with us is crucified and resurrected. Let me say that again. God's presence with us is crucified and resurrected. He passes judgment on the temple, which had failed to become a place of prayer for all nations. And he foretold its destruction. The curtain that served as the entryway into the Holy of Holies, the curtain with those cherubim is torn in two at the moment of Jesus' death. The people and the place whose center was meant to be the presence of God become the person of Jesus, the incarnate, crucified, and resurrected embodiment of God's priestly kingdom and holy nation in full communion with God. Jesus is the true Israelite. Jesus is the temple. And so those who are in Jesus, by faith, according to God's grace, participate in the same life. The Spirit of Jesus dwells in the church. In the present age, God's presence indwells the church by the grace of God. Jesus has sent his Spirit to make a home with us who love him. That's how John puts it. The incarnate resurrected Christ lives in us, as Paul says over and over. And so he describes the church as God's temple, the dwelling place of God. There's a whole bunch of verses here. I'm not going to tell you what all the verses are, but you can, you can ask later or, or look at the link. Yet the church is not a place, but a people. Therefore, as foreigners and refugees, that's what Peter calls us, We are built into a spiritual household, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 1 Peter 2. Read that chapter. Read that chapter this week. And see the echoes and the astonishing claim. A royal priesthood and a holy nation journeying on the way of Jesus. In us, the person of Jesus becomes a holy priestly people Sojourning among the nations, bringing near the presence of God as we go. And then finally, we look forward to union with God. The union of all humankind and all creation with God. At the restoration, reconciliation, and consummation of all things. Taking those words from Peter and Paul. The restoration of all things, the reconciliation of all things, and the consummation, the drawing together of all things. We will live in full communion with God. The present reality of Christ in us and us in Christ will become a new experience that some theologians refer to as union with Christ or union with God. Peter refers to this promise as becoming, quote, participants in the divine nature. Kind of a mind-blowing thing. There you have it. Our destiny is a final transformation in which we will dwell in the deepest possible communion with God. The symbol of the tabernacle will become our reality. That's what we contemplate this morning. When we think about building instructions for a tent. The symbol of our future reality, of finally drawing into the full presence of God. God's holiness will be our holiness. Because of this union, the groaning of all creation will be answered. Heaven and earth will be unified. It's Revelation 21. God will dwell fully in the midst of creation, without barriers, without reserve. And God's redeemed will serve him as holy priests forever. And that's all over Revelation. So that's the trajectory. That's where we're going. And that's the only story by which I can make sense of the meaning of the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle for us today. I have to see it in relation to that long trajectory of sanctification of our journey toward the presence of God. And we celebrate this morning in the presence of God, by the Holy Spirit, in Christ. We celebrate in the communion that Jesus draws near to us, that we live in fellowship with him. But let's not be deceived, church. We are not yet in union with God. Anybody here ready to say, I am holy? You will be. And you're on the way in Christ. That purifying fire is doing its work on you as you abide in Christ. And as you make space for the presence of God. So let's look at making space. Go to the next one. Oh, look, I did have slides for all of those. Five clicks. Yeah. Good thing. That's what I get when I don't paste my slides into my document. Remind me where they are. Making space in our midst, which I just want to call the liturgy of God's people because I used the L word last week. That's what Andrew called it. He goes, did I hear the O word? We're doing a liturgy. Right? And, and, I, and I know that that's odd for most of us. Um, but like I said, all that means is the work of the people. It's our collective congregational labor to what? To draw into the presence of God. Right? And sometimes that labor has more structure. Sometimes that labor has a little more rhythm and flow and sometimes it's a little more loosey-goosey. But it's our work together as we sing together and pray together. We confess together. That's our work. But so is setting up chairs. So is fixing the parking lot. So is throw in a yard party. Sign-up list was sent out this morning. Everybody, do your liturgy. Okay? We have to make that space. Look, if we're going if, to, if, if through us, God's presence comes into the world to continue that sanctifying work, then we're going to have to Collaborate. We're going to have to make space. We're going to have to do some things on purpose, in a particular way, with great care and sacrifice, and it costs some money. We have to do that. We have to make that space because that's how God does business. That's how God has always worked in collaboration with the people whom he calls. So in Exodus 25, God asks for a two-fold sacrifice, an offering of wealth, and a service of artistry. This is the work of the people. This is our liturgy. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to take for me an offering. Listen now. From all whose hearts prompt them to give, you shall receive the offering for me. This is the offering that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and fine linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and gems to be set in the ephod, and for the breastpiece, and have them make me a sanctuary, so that I may dwell among them in accordance with all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, you, so you shall make it. So there's the wealth of the offering. Get get the stuff together. We need some materials here. So if your heart tells you that you need to do the work of making space for God, than give. But then you also have to do this, and, and you can miss it because it's just the word make. It's just the word make. And have them make me a sanctuary. The word make. God made the heavens and the earth. Just the word make. It's creation. It's artistry. It's the exercise of skill and wisdom. It's craft. It's the reflection of the image of God. This unbelievable capacity that we have to turn raw materials into something beautiful. God knows churches of Christ are not the most aesthetically pleasing uh, of uh, their buildings aren't the most aesthetically pleasing of, of, of all buildings. Um. And I, at my age now, I have very different feelings about that than I did as a younger man. Uh, not only because I was sort of raised in that rugged, barren, utilitarian tradition, um, but I had some commitments. I had some commitments that, that made me think it's an awful luxury and a waste to spend our time on frills and decorations and and so on. I remember when I went to Harding as a freshman that we did a Bible majors retreat every year. This is my very first Bible majors retreat, beginning of the year, beginning of my college experience. All the Bible majors and all of the Bible professors go out to Camp Dakota together and spend the day interacting, and there are different presentations by the professors, and one of the professors reviewed a book for us. As I recall, it was called Soul Salsa. I think it was by Lynn Sweet. And it was basically uh, an evangelical apology for, in other words, a defense of aesthetics. Right? And this is sort of the beginning of the emergent church movement. I don't know if that means anything to you necessarily. But sort of alternative church approaches. This is the year 2000. And so there's there's kind of a cultural shakeup going on and people are trying to figure out how to do church in coffee houses and how to do church in basketball gyms and we're you know, we're gonna be in alternative spaces and we're gonna respond to the culture that has different tastes than it used to in different ways. It's gonna be innovative, it's gonna be open. And and this apology for aesthetics prompted me. Um the the uh what would you say, Megan? The um, assertive freshman? Assertive freshman? Go like this? (laughs) Yes? And I said something along the lines of, why would you need that in order to follow Jesus? Don't we need to make disciples? Don't we need to be anywhere, anytime, ready to worship God without all of the all of the effects and all of the extra trimmings. Don't, don't we need to be a people who can be God's people in every circumstance, even when we're too poor to afford decorations? Why do we need that stuff, you know? And I'm sure with great forbearance, he gave me an answer that I ignored. And, and, uh, and at this point in my life, I've really repented of that. I've, I've come to recognize actually the great deficit in our, and I'm not talking about just Stones River, I'm talking about my tradition, the great deficit in our appreciation for the use of the gift of artistry that God has given us, the ability to make a space that evokes awe and wonder and reverence before the holiness of God and longing and gratitude. All of that beauty that we can create for God, is a part of making space. Making space for us to draw near to the God who wants to be present with us, but needs to put up some curtains with some cherubim on it to go, remember where you are. This isn't just an auditorium. Remember where you are. Pay attention to what's happening. Because God will melt your face off. Right? So, we make space with our wealth and with our artistry, and I would ask you these two questions. What do we, Stones River, have to offer God in the pursuit of making space? And what abilities can we, Stones River, exercise in the creation of space for God to dwell I don't come with answers this morning. I come with questions like a good rabbi, right? But we, have to, we, have to, we, we have to contemplate this when we read these texts. We have to ask ourselves, what am I to give if we're going to make space? What am I to make if we're going to create a dwelling in order to draw near to God? So that's our work. That's the liturgy. The work of the people. But then there's the work of God. The work of God. Go to the next one. And the next one. And the next one. I thought he was following along. Sorry about that. And that purpose is transformation. There's what we do, but then there's what God does. And this is, a, this is a really important part, what we can't do. With all of our artistry and all of our generosity and all of our, our, our openness and desire, what we can't do is the thing that God can do, and that is make us holy. And so God draws near to Israel once more. Ready to do this refining work. And in the symbols of the tabernacle, we find uh, precisely the way in which God will do this. Uh, the first is the symbols of presence. So go to the next slide. I'm guessing there's one there. 25, 20, 21 to 22. 22. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the co- covenants that I give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the covenant, I will deliver to you all my commands for the Israelites. Sorry, I'm opening up my... I've lost a page so I'm going to open this up digitally just about there okay We have the bread of presence. We have the tent of meeting. And these two are the primary symbols in the construction of this, of this big tent of what God expresses there. That he will meet us. I will meet you, he says, in this place. The bread of presence, 12 loaves, placed on a table in the tent of meeting symbolizing Israel but bathed in the perpetual light of the candles, the menorah that's lit. Always. To be tended and to be lit at all times. So Israel, God's bread for the nations constantly bathed in the light of creation the light that illuminates the garden and then also of course the tent of meeting itself a place where we draw near to the presence of God the intensifying presence of God God draws near for the first time since Genesis 2, but Israel's unholiness requires this gradual approach from the courtyard to the tent of meeting and no farther except for the high priest who can go into the Holy of Holies. And then the altar and the mercy seat represent the sanctifying work, the altar on which sacrifices for sin are offered so that Israel is forgiven and made clean, but also the mercy seat itself where once a year the high priest enters, sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat for the redemption of all Israel, the day of atonement. So, these symbols of sanctification, of atonement, lead us to the vocation that the tabernacle symbolizes, the call to Israel to approach heaven, the call to Israel to learn to mediate this presence as a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These symbols, I think, invite us to reflect likewise on how it is that we draw near, what the process that we go through, how it is that we make ourselves available to the sanctifying presence of God, and how it is that God is at work sanctifying us. And so I but I don't want to jump to, well, Jesus, Jesus, you know, makes us holy, and so, you know, the blood of the Lamb and we're saved and so right? It's not that that's not true. It's that it it invites us to sort of skip over and leave behind all that this means. This invitation to make space for the presence of God. A space in which as we come, we are forgiven because we repent. Because we offer sacrifice. A living sacrifice, as Paul puts it in Romans 8 our very bodies or our sacrifice and our spiritual act of worship. And we expect then that if we are approaching God in worship this morning, if we are in the presence of God, we're being made holy and that's not an abstract concept. Right? I mean, it's not just you're sort of you pass muster or you don't. We, we We sometimes think about this this idea of of being given the status of righteousness or holiness, borrowing jesus' status, so that we're not actually holy. It's just that Jesus is holy in our place. But that's not what this process is about. This process isn't simply borrowing someone else's holiness. Because we make space, we are indeed purified. Our sin, our rebellion, our selfishness, that's what's being burnt away when we come to worship? Is it slow? I could invite some of the older members of the church to come up here and tell us whether or not it's fast or slow. But I think we all already have a sense that the story that goes from tabernacle to new creation is just about the right length of time to imagine this process of transformation. Certainly feels that way. You know, David asked, Does it seem like the days are going fast? And I gotta say, it just depends on what I'm focused on. If it's me becoming more like Jesus, it seems like a really slow grind. But that's what this is. That when we ask the question, how do you make space? What will you offer? What will you make? What will you build? How do you come into God's presence? How do you repent? How do you lay down your life as a sacrifice on the altar? How do you receive the atonement of Christ's blood over and over and over? When we ask that question, what we're looking toward and longing for and aiming at is nothing less than becoming holy as God is holy. Not borrowed righteousness, but transformation. And so I want to end with this final image. Go to that, that last one. If you turn over to uh, the end of chapter 27, there's this peculiar little injunction. You shall further command the Israelites to bring your pure oil of beaten olives for the light, so that a lamp may be set up to burn regularly. In the tent of meeting, outside the curtain that is before the covenant, Aaron and his sons, the priests, shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a perpetual ordinance to be observed throughout their generations by the Israelites. Now again, I'm telling you that this light, this perpetual light, it is a symbol of the presence of God. Shining always on the bread of presence as the incense rises. The incense symbolizing the prayers of Israel continually flowing up. This light, this light of God, it has to be tended. You have to keep the candles lit. You have to keep them lit constantly. You have to attend to this work. And so I ask you again how do we tend to the presence of God? What do we do to make this space? And once we've made it, what is the work that we do to ensure that at all times this light is shining on the bread of presence? The 12 loaves, the tribes of Israel, the people of God. How do we tend that that light? On Saturday, we're going to throw a party. We're going to make space for our neighbors. We're going to do things like set up tables and chairs and light a fire and light some charcoal and grill some food. We're going to play games. We're going to play some music. We're going to worship some. We're going to interact. And in all of that work of this people of God, we're tending to God's presence. We're doing what we do as the church, as the temple, on the go. As the dwelling place of God's Spirit through which others might possibly glimpse and even experience the goodness and holiness and justice of God. We're going to do the work to keep that light lit. Tend to the presence of God. It's not just about us. It's not just about what we do on a Sunday morning, what we do in a worship service. Because the church, the people, where God is the center... The very presence of God is the center. The people are on the move. The people are out in the neighborhood. And I don't think that there's any better representation of that for us right now than this yard. Which is a space. And it's a space that God has made and that we get to tend. That we get to open up. And offer hospitality and say, God, what are you doing? And what can I offer? What can I give? What can I do? What can I make so that we might come with our neighbors more fully into your presence? That's what we're asking. And that's the invitation this morning. Make space. Let's make space together. Let's tend to the Spirit of God. Let's keep those candles lit. In the name of Jesus, amen.